0: I'd ask you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Picking up where we left off last week, we'll be looking this morning, really focusing in on verses 17 through 21. So Galatians 2, 17 through 21. Uh, Last week, I had some friends with me, and they came to the prayer time, and I was just talking to them about what was going on. (laughs) And I happened to mention to them that last week was my 99th sermon. And then I was embarrassed (laughs) when Lloyd sat there and said, the 99th sermon. Uh, But here is what I'm going to do here. Today is a sort of milestone, right? Uh, This is the 100th sermon that I will have preached here at Grace. And I don't bring that up because, I mean, I hope that this really feels, if this is a marathon, I feel like we've just hit mile one. Um, And it's great. I bring that up for two reasons, really. First, uh, I just want to celebrate the faithfulness of God's grace here to me and to our church here. I'm so thankful to have had just over two years with you as your pastor. I'm so glad that God has given us his word. I'm so thankful he's put me in a position to get to preach that word to you week in and week out and to get to address and declare to you the glories of Christ. Um, That is a privilege that is never lost on me. second reason I bring that up is because of the nature of this text this morning. Uh, I am delighted to find us here in this passage on a day like today, because I don't think you could have a more appropriate text than what we have here at this moment. Uh, When I first came here, and I thought to myself, what do I want my pastoral ministry, you know, you have all these grandiose ideas. What do I want to be defined as as a pastor? Well, the ministry that I wanted to be defined of is, is by one overarching feature above everything else. To desire to see you cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ and to love your Savior and your King. That's still my desire. And it will be until the day I die. So it is fitting to find us here today on a day like this in a text that so wonderfully brings us back to consider the basics of faith And in particular, to look at the gospel of God's grace and our justification by faith alone. Now, we never graduate from this message. You will never hit a point in your Christian walk where you can leave this. The more we know this gospel, the more we understand it, the more fascinating it will become to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is like a masterpiece painting which, as we look at it, only draws us deeper and closer with its detail and its beauty. We grow to appreciate it more. It is an ocean of delight that only becomes more fascinating and enchanting the deeper we dive into it. Martin Luther remarks that, When you hear an immature and unripe saint trumpet that he knows very well that we must be saved by the grace of God without our own works, and then pretend that it is a snap for him. Well, then you have no doubt that he has no idea what he is talking about and probably will never find out. For this is not an art that can be completely learned or of which a person could boast that he is a master. It is an art that will always have us as pupils while it remains the master. And all those who do understand and practice it do not boast that they can do everything. On the contrary, they sense it like a a wonderful taste or odor that they greatly desire and pursue, and they are amazed that they cannot grasp it or comprehend it as they would like. They hunger, thirst, and yearn for it more and more, and they never tire of hearing about it or dealing with it. I think what Luther captures there is one of, the, one of the delightful mysteries of the gospel, which is clearly apparent for us in our text today, which is that while the gospel can be summed up simply by a child in four sentences, it is deep enough to occupy your attention and your wonder for the rest of eternity. And our time this morning, my prayer, is that God would give you all a vision, both for the beautiful simplicity of the gospel— that maybe if you have come to a point where you think to yourself, you know, I think I've got the gospel figured out pretty well. That you'll be reminded of that beautiful simplicity. And that you also be pressed in profound wonder of what he has accomplished in and through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading our text this morning. Uh, our focus, as I've mentioned, is going to be on verses 17-21. But as I mentioned last week, we'd be returning to verses 15 and 16, so we're going to get a running start here, starting in verse 15 and reading through verse 21, even though our focus this morning will be on verse 21. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. In the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, the core issue of this passage has directly to do with the main idea of this entire letter, Since we are all sinners, we are all incapable of meeting God's righteous standard, which is laid out in His holy law. Our only hope for salvation is to trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Faith in Christ is the means by which we receive His righteousness. Faith links us to Jesus in a unique and powerful way so that His righteousness is credited to us and our sin is paid in full. His death becomes our death, so that His life might become our life. Eternal life with Christ, in Christ, comes at a high price. It came at at a high price to Jesus because He suffered the wrath of God on the cross where He died. And it comes at a high price to us since it requires us to die with Him to ourselves. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer has famously observed, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So if you would be one with Christ, if you would have his life for your own, you must join him on the path of the cross. Since Jesus says that whoever would keep his life will lose it. But whoever loses for his life for my sake and for the gospels will keep it. So if you would live with Christ, then the old self, the old ways... The sinful passions of our flesh must be put to death on the cross with Him. Our aim this morning is to press into that gospel mystery of how we find life in the death of Christ and in the death of our sin. Now, the power of Paul's words here in verse, verses 17 through 21 comes from the way that he powerfully articulates the reality of the, this gospel of grace. And these words are instructive because they teach us how to press into the unity that we have with Jesus by faith, which is the source of our hope and of, of, new, of the new life that we have received by grace through him. So, very simply, the main idea of this text. If you get one thing out of this, is this. We live by faith in the Son. We live by faith in the Son. I have three points this morning. Um, the first is, is going to deal a little bit more with something, uh, detail of this text. And then the second two will have to do with that unity we have in Jesus. So my first point will be the true transgression. The true transgression. Secondly, We'll look at what it means to be united with Christ in his death. So united with Christ in his death. And lastly, we'll look at what it means to be united with Christ in his life. United with Christ in his life. So we're going to begin with the true transgression. Now there is one big problem that faces all of humanity. It's our sin. We were created to know and to love God, but since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden... We are all born in a state of war with God. Sin has mastery over us. God, in his kind mercy, chose to redeem us from that slavery. That, re- that redemption came at the cost of the blood of Christ, which was shed on the cross. If you've been tracking with us, if you've been here for the past uh, few weeks while we've been in the book of Galatians, then you'll know that the problem that was going on here in the churches of Galatia, the reason why Paul wrote this letter in the first place, is that there were certain men teaching a different gospel, which said that a person needed to keep the law in order to be made right with God. Now, let's be very clear here. They were not denying that Jesus was the Messiah. They were happy to accept him as the Messiah. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that they misunderstood the place of the law of Moses. By requiring works of the law to be saved, these men were preaching a distortion of the gospel of grace, which in effect nullified what Jesus came to do, which is why Paul wrote this letter. So in verses 15 and 16, which we looked at last week, Paul makes it abundantly clear that no one can be counted as innocent in the sight of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that though he was born a Jew and was entitled to the promises of God's covenants and the law as his birthright, he did not count that heritage as something that gave him an edge before the judgment seat of God. Because, as he says, the law is powerless to make a person innocent. Only Christ can do that. Therefore, Paul says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be made justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since they cannot do that. So the issue going on in the early church, especially we see in the churches in Galatia, had to do with the relationship of the work of Jesus to the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic law. The faction that had invaded these churches was teaching that the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Laws were still in effect, that they still had to be observed, and that is why they wanted the Galatians to submit themselves to these works. But Paul understood that the stipulations of the law and the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai had been fulfilled by Jesus. They were shadows of the thing that was coming, which of which Christ was the full picture. When Jesus entered the world, he set about a ministry that was much more excellent than the old ministry of Moses, since he enacted and mediates a new and better covenant, which had been promised in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. A new age dawned with the entry of Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of God entered with him, and the covenant established through the shedding of his blood endures forever. That's what we read about in 2 Corinthians. Brad uh, read for us this morning, earlier. Part of the problem with the distorted gospel is, these false teachers in Galatia were preaching, was that they were trying to keep Christ in the old covenant instead of embracing the new covenant he had come to establish. They were looking to works of the law for their righteousness, and they were trying to cause others to do the same, and that put them in a dangerous position. Now, Paul... Uh, the words, what he's recorded here is still kind of set within the conversation that he had with Peter in Antioch when Peter uh, was drawn away, uh, which we looked at last week. Paul makes it very clear that he and Peter did not set their hope on their ability to keep the law. They set it on Christ. That's why he says collectively, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by him and not by works of the law. And Paul says in verse 16, because no one can be justified by those works. So, as we, have, as we make our way into this letter, we're starting to get a better idea of how the gospel that was being preached by these false teachers in Galatia contradicted the gospel that Paul and the apostles preached in verses 17 through 18, where Paul says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What I'm going to do here is press into these words. This is a little confusing. Um, and you have to know that these opening words in verse 17 are hotly debated by scholars. So what we're going to look at here is is kind of a skirting a little bit to get to the core of the issue going on. The debate that goes on in this verse has to do with whether or not Paul means that he and Peter are being falsely accused of being sinners, because they don't argue you have to keep the law in order to be righteous and be justified by it, or if Paul is saying that he and Peter freely admit that they're sinners, which is why they trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Now, the big, what that ends up, as we look at this passage, the point is going to be the same. But the argument is is which one is he saying he's a sinner? or is he saying that he's being falsely accused of being a sinner? You can make a really convincing argument for either position, but I think the second option makes the most sense because it ties in with what Paul has already said in verses 15 and 16, that though he and Peter were born Jews, they had no advantage over their Gentile brethren before God because they too had broken God's holy law. The law cannot make anyone righteous. It can only reveal people for what they are. As sinners, But the fact that Peter and Paul under the law were found to be sinners does not make Jesus the servant of sin as it seems that Paul's opponents were accusing him of saying because of what we read in verse 18 Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down I prove myself to be a transgressor So, the point is this whichever way you go in that academic debate the point Paul's making here is very clear in delivering us from the demands of the law, Jesus is not the servant of sin. That's what Paul is saying. Far from it. Jesus assaults sin and the power it has over us through the law by fulfilling the demands of the law, and he makes us servants of God and inheritors of God's favor with him. That's the point Paul wants you to have there. That Which leads us to this. The true transgression here is not on the part of Peter and Paul, but on, these, on the part of these false teachers who are wanting to bring people back into that slavery under the law. Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove that I am the transgressor. So what he's saying there is that to return to the law... Now that Christ has come and set us free in this new age of salvation is to make the work of Christ null and void. There can be no middle ground here. Trying to justify ourselves through works makes the work of Jesus ineffective and pointless, as we read in verse 21. So what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, going back to our passage last week, It explains why Peter's sudden unwillingness to associate with any of the the Gentiles in Antioch was so wrong. Remember, Peter was happy to live with the Gentiles, to eat with them, to live like them, to worship with them, until certain men from James came and suddenly he stopped. His actions sent a message to the Gentiles and the church in Antioch that they could only be a part of the people of God if they were willing to come back under the confines of the law. But this was to rebuild the dividing wall that Christ came to break down. This was to separate what God had joined together under the rule of Christ. And so Paul confronted Peter. This also explains why Paul was so urgent to call the Galatian churches back to the gospel they had first received from him. If they gave in to this distorted gospel, if they started to think, you know, Jesus is a great Savior, but I've got to do things in order to get God's favor. I've got to join myself back to these old ways in order to, to, to be fitting in the sight of God. Then they'd be trying to straddle the space between two world, worlds, returning back to the shackles of the law that Christ had had broken them free from. For us, this means that when we take our eyes from the cross of Christ and we start to look at the things we do as a means to get favor from God, then we can know that we have left a pure gospel of grace for a false gospel of works. People tend to violate the gospel of God's grace in two main ways. Either we presume upon the grace of God and commit high handed sins against him under the pretense of, well, Jesus died for all my sins, so he'll cover this one too. And then we sin. That's one way we violate it. The second way we violate it is we violate the gospel of grace by by trying to stack the deck in our favor with good works, thinking that we are acceptable before God because we do morally good things. And God is a perfect judge. He sees through our works. He sees at the heart. We're told, Paul tells us, that God counts righteousness to us on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. The path to righteousness is the path of faith in Him, not what we do. There is no other way. Even so, we see the situation going on in Galatia in the early church shows us how easily we can drift back into a position where we find ourselves subtly trusting in our own works, adding to Christ for acceptance and favor from God. It's it's a very subtle thing to do. Trusting in works in addition to Christ for favor before God comes very naturally. It came very naturally to the churches in Galatia and almost brought them into disaster. It comes very naturally to us when we start to keep account of how often have I read my Bible? And how often, how well, how, how well is my prayer life going on? And you know, I really want an A on that test, so I better make sure I'm praying a lot this week. You see how easily we can shift from turning the, the works that are meant to be the fruit of the righteousness that are in our lives into the reason why God ought to look at us and say, you know, you're in the club. That's wrong. But It's easy. It's easy to do. The author of Hebrews warns us when he says, We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression, or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We must see a works-based gospel for the transgression that it is. It is an assault against God to think that you can justify yourself or make yourself righteous through your own deeds. We have no power to save ourselves. And when we appeal to our own goodness as the thing which will make us right in the sight of God, we only show ourselves to be the transgressor. We cannot afford to neglect this message. And so. As we have seen, we were called to be guardians of the gospel. We must stand guard by paying close attention to this message, reminding ourselves daily, moment by moment, of how God saved us out of our sin, in his goodness and in his loving kindness, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Three, four, through seven. So that is the true transgression going on in this passage. Now we want to transition a little bit to look at the unity we have with Christ in His life and His death. So, as I was as I was writing this sermon, I was impressed with how hard it is to straddle this line between the basic aspects of what the gospel is and how complicated it gets. Uh, as the further we dive into it. So stop for a moment. I'll summarize what we've seen, what we've heard. God's answer to our condition of sin is to unify us with Christ through faith so that his work and his excellence are credited to us and our sin is, is imputed to him and he paid for it. So adding to or taking away from that fundamental message is a transgression against God because it opposes what he has accomplished in the gospel of grace. That is the message of verses 17 and 18, a message that is founded in this idea that God has rescued us from the present evil age that we live in and has secured us in a new age, in a new kingdom under the reign of Jesus Christ, which goes all the way back to what Paul said in, in chapter 1 verses 3 and 5. The defining feature of God's people is their relationship with him through Christ because of grace. So the thing that makes you who you are, if you're a follower of Christ, is your relationship with God through Jesus by faith because of his grace. And in the rest of our time this morning, we're going to be looking at that relationship, this union with Jesus. Paul indicates two bizarre things which are absolutely essential for you to understand. Paul indicates that when we are united to Christ by faith, we are joined with him in his death and in his life. Those are two realities that have come about because of the inbreaking of this new age in which we are insured under the new, which are insured under the new covenant which, which has been established by the work of Christ on the cross. So let's start here. With our, with talking about how our faith unites us to Jesus in His death, so we're united to Jesus in His death. Look at verses nineteen, the first part of verse twenty. That's what Paul says: For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ; it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Paul put no hope in the law for his innocence. That much I think I beat that horse to a pulp. The reason he says that is to remind the Galatians that neither he nor they can be made righteous or be justified in the sight of God through works of the law. That does not mean that Paul thought that the the law was pointless or that it was worthless. The law is massively important because it shows us what God's holy standard is. And God says to Israel, Leviticus 19, verses 1 through 2, Be holy, for I am holy. And then he gives them the law. It is impossible to have a relationship with a holy God if we are polluted by anything that is unclean, by by sin and disobedience, which is why we all need to be rescued, because we've all disobeyed God. There's another purpose for the law besides just telling us that we're sinners, though. It's an important purpose, which functions for, for the purpose of our salvation. The law explains why the cross of Christ was necessary in order for us to have life. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that, so with the purpose that, I might live to God. A consequence of sin under God's righteous law is death. Sin brings death. It is what the, it is what the law demands. But Paul wasn't a ghost when he wrote these things, when he wrote these words, when he says, I died. So what does he mean here when he says, through the law, I died to the law? Well, he can say that he has died because of the unity that he has with Christ by faith. Galatians 4, verse 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, So that we might receive adoption as sons. And then Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 likewise explains that Jesus took on flesh and blood so that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He says that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a, become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a payment, propitiation for the sins of his people. When Paul So when Paul says, I died through the law to the law, he is referring to the way that Jesus came under the law in the era of the law and suffered the penalty that the law demanded for his people. Sins that he had not committed, but sins which his people had. As one theologian puts it, since Jesus lived under the law, he could free those who lived under, under the dominion of sin and the law. And therefore, the reign of the law and the reign of death, which the law demands, has come to an end when it was fulfilled in the death of Christ. The point, that point is essential. And it, it's really, it really strikes home when we look at verse 20, when Paul boldly announces, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, if you, if you didn't grow up in the church, or if you're new to Christianity, or if you're not a Christian, that sounds crazy for Paul to say, I have been crucified. But there are some profound realities being laid out here when Paul says this about the effectiveness of Jesus' death and our relationship to him and to the law. The Gospel of Grace teaches us three things about a believer's relationship to the law now that Christ has suffered the penalty the law demanded. First, it teaches us that we have died through the law, and therefore the requirements of the law are fulfilled. The evidence of Jesus' perfection is the empty tomb. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Jesus didn't come to make a new religion. Rather, Jesus says, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law is binding until it is fulfilled. And it is fulfilled through the effective death of Jesus. Faith unites us to Jesus in such a way that when he died, we in effect died with him as he functioned as a new and better adam as far as the law of righteousness is concerned we are free we are clear and god's righteousness and his justice has been satisfied the second thing the gospel of grace teaches us about the law and our relationship to it is that it teaches us that we have died to the law and therefore we have been released from the claim that the law had on us that means that we must not return to the old covenant Which was only meant to usher in this true reality which has been established by Christ. The law had a purpose, didn't it? The law was important. The law, though, was meant to be temporary. The law is, in a way, like a syringe. A syringe has a purpose, it delivers life giving medicine to a patient. But the syringe itself does not make you well, it's through the syringe that you receive the medication. And then the syringe is taken out and it's put in the sharps container. It has served its purpose. The life giving medication that we needed wasn't the law, it was Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. Through his death, we died. The law was then satisfied. And now the guilty verdict that was on us has been done away with. You wouldn't leave a needle in your arm after you had gotten a shot. Shots are painful. Leaving it there uh, would mean you'd probably get an infection and need another shot. When the law had served its purpose, it was meant to give way to the law of Christ and the new covenant of his grace. The third thing that the gospel of grace teaches us about the law and our relationship to it is that it teaches us that, because we, have, that we have life in Jesus' death. We have life in Jesus' death. It sounds a little counterintuitive, but it is true every night when ellie puts titus to bed they sing what we call the gospel song which goes if you haven't heard it it goes a little bit like this holy god in love became perfect man to bear my blame on the cross he took my sin By his death, I live again. And as I sing that song, I think to myself, but wait, I'm made alive by Jesus' life. But that's not the full picture. It was Jesus' death that brought us life because his death brought us life through the law and its fulfillment. Without the death of Christ, the life that we hope in as Christians doesn't exist. Paul says that he died with Christ through the law to the law. And that death results in his life towards God. He says, I live because he died. That is the power of the cross. It is so much more than just a piece of wood. It is the place where eternal life became ours. Which then brings us to consider our third point this morning. We are united to Christ in his death. But we are also united to Christ in his life. Uh, Look at the second part of verse 20. Paul says that because he died with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There might, I don't know that you would find more glorious words in the Bible than that. The whole reason this good news is real The whole reason it is good news that that we have died with Christ through the law to the law is because through that death we live, and we don't live the way we used to. We live in a new age, under a new king, as members of a new and eternal kingdom. Paul talks about this amazing gospel transformation in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him for, him, for who there's for sorry for him who for their sake died and was raised then he goes on to say therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come all this is from god who through christ reconciled us made us Right, brought us back to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, there are a few things we should notice about this new life that Paul talks about, which believers receive through faith in Christ by the power of his work on the cross. First, we understand that because we have died with Christ, the life we now have is not our own but his. Paul says it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now that doesn't mean that Paul was some sort of zombie or that he was possessed. He he retained his personality, but he was a new person and Jesus was the ruler of his life. The old self that Paul talks about the who we were prior to Christ, that was what was put to death with him. Those who are united to Jesus by faith have received a new identity, one that's that's defined by that relationship that we have with him. And in this, in this relationship, we are transformed. And in that transformation, we live like we were meant to live. One day that transformation will be complete. And we will live and the, we will really live Like Jesus, God created human beings in his own image. He created you to have a relationship with him. That's a relationship that can't happen as long as the old self, that self that's enslaved to sin under the law and with a desire for sin is allowed to go on living. And so Christ died and we died with him so that we might receive new hearts and become new creatures in him. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And the moment that began was on the cross. Jesus told Nicodemus that a person could not see the kingdom of God unless he was born again. That confused the mess out of Nicodemus. But it shouldn't confuse anyone who has put their faith in Jesus for salvation. The power of the cross really does transform people. It gives them new desires. It gives them a new heart, a heart that loves God. And while this transformation is a process, it is guaranteed because of what Christ did and because of what he is doing. Second thing we see about the life we have in Christ is that, the li- that this life in Christ is lived by faith in Christ. You can detect the difference between the gospel that Paul received and preached and the distorted gospel that was, being, uh, that was gaining traction in Galatia right here. Look at how Paul emphasizes that the new life, the life that is lived under the, under the dominion of King Jesus, is lived by faith in him. Under the new covenant of Christ, the life we are called to live is not a life under the rule of the Mosaic law. It is life under the rule of King Jesus. This is a life that is lived according to the love which God has poured out on us in Christ. I don't think there's words that ever captured the heart of the gospel quite as well as what we read here when Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Tom Schreiner is right when he says, love is the fuel of faith. I think that we usually tend to talk about God's love in these grandiose terms. We talk about God's love for the world. We talk about his love for the church. Those things are right. They're biblical. It is right to talk that way. But it is also right to say personally that the righteous king who I offended with my sin loved me. And he loved me by coming and dying for the sin I committed against him. And it's through his death that I've come alive again. And my life belongs to him. And I love him because he loves me. Friends, never lose sight of that love which Jesus has for you. Never lose sight of it because that was the love that drove Jesus to take up the cross. It was love that made Paul pursue Peter when he got out of line with this message. It was love that made the sacrifice of Christ beautiful in the sight of his father. And it will be that love which will keep us and sustain us in our faith, even when the sea is rough and the winds howl, because this love never fails. This conviction led Paul to say, consequently in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's where the rubber meets the road here if salvation is a matter of what we do and not a matter of faith, then Christ died for nothing. The leaders in Galatia who were requiring people to keep the law were effectively nullifying the cross of Christ. Paul says, if that is the way you receive righteousness, then Jesus died for no reason. They were emptying the love of Christ of its power. So Paul took his stand in the love of Christ, under the rule of Christ, at the foot of the cross of Christ. He forfeited hope in anything else because everything but faith in Christ threatens to nullify the grace of God, which he has poured out on the world through him. Paul's example is an example I would call you to as well this morning. As a church, as followers of Jesus, We must take our stand at the foot of the cross. Recognizing that we are great sinners, but Christ is a greater Savior. And nothing we could do could ever add to the excellence of what He has accomplished for us. We take our stand at the foot of the cross and we will go nowhere else. The gospel of grace shows us that we are great sinners. It shows us that we are not able to make ourselves right in God's sight but it also shows us the infinite excellence of Jesus' blood and it calls each of us to take our stand beneath his cross. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our King, our Master, our Lord. We thank you for the way you came under the law you were born uh, as a man. You took on flesh. You you entered into a world that was racked with sin and filthiness. You came under those bound those, those bonds so that you could relieve us of our bondage. Lord, we, we are asking this morning that you would place before us again the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. It is so deep and vast, Lord. We'll never reach the end of the glory of this gospel message. But at the same time, Father, we know we can, the gospel is summed up in, in four statements. You are God, the creator of all, ruler of all, and perfect judge. You are holy. and We are sinful men and women, and we deserve your wrath that Jesus is a perfect Savior and came to save the lost through His death and through His life. And that the promise of eternal life You have given us is that all who believe will not perish but have eternal life in Him. We ask, Father, that You would just warm our hearts to this, this morning. And that as we go out the rest of this week that we would wake up thinking of this grace and we would go to sleep thinking of this grace. I pray, Father, give us a heavenly mindset that loves Jesus and has the strength to live in the new world he's making. And I pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.